This evening I'd like to reflect on um, what is a very traditional contemplation. Actually, the feature is not strongly in the Tibetan school of Buddhism. But I think it's a contemplation which is as relevant in our time and culture as it is and has been in a Tibetan culture. And it's a contemplation on the preciousness of human birth, or the preciousness of human life. I'd like to begin with a poem by Mary Oliver, which I think speaks to this contemplation. It's called The Messenger. My work is loving the world. Here the sunflowers, there the hummingbirds, equal seekers of sweetness. Here the quickening yeast, there the blue clouds. Here the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. The delphinium, the sheep in the pasture, and the pasture, which is mostly rejoicing, since all the ingredients are here, which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes, a mouth with which to give shouts of joy to the moth and to the wren, to the sleepy dugout clan, telling them all over and over how it is that we live. The line from this poem about keeping my mind on what most matters. I think in the beginning of a retreat, this is a question which is really an inv inviting us to explore it. And the question of keeping our mind on what most matters is really a question really about why we're here, what we're doing here. What the heart of our practice is, it's a question that asks us to examine, to explore our own sense of, of what motivates us. What do we aspire to in this practice? What is our intention, not only here, but maybe what are the deepest intentions in our life? Now, when we begin a retreat, of course, we all very quickly discover that our life follows us onto the cushion, and it follows us into our walking path. All the issues and the concerns that have occupied us in our life they don't magically disappear just because we have changed our address. Our minds and our bodies are our companions in our life. And all the things that a mind can do, it will do on retreat. And we discover, actually, most people discover that many, many things matter to them. Their families, their work, their relationships, their likes, their dislikes, their preferences. 
It matters to us all the things that we struggle with, dwell upon all our hopes and dreams. It's what the Buddha called the world of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows in every human life. <coughs> and in, when we sit in the middle of that swirling vortex, of thoughts and images, feelings, emotions, plans. So many things are actually calling for our attention. And it's not even easy to know what it is to keep in mind what really matters. Yet in a way, in our practice, this is what we're asked to do. We're asked to simplify. And first we we create the ground of that simplicity. First we know to even understand what matters to us most. We need to be awake, we need to be present, we need to know how to listen deeply. So we take those beginning steps in a retreat. All the time we, we find our feet, we take our seat, we touch the ground. And then perhaps we do really begin to remember as we calm down in this changing, uncertain, unpredictable life. What is it that is of most enduring value to us? What is it that is too important for us to forget? What is it that we love most deeply? I have a friend, she's a rather eccentric friend, and she threw a very big 60th birthday party. And it started out like most birthday parties do, you know, with people being welcomed, you know, and nice food and lots of conversation, you know, and, and, and a lot of friendliness. And then after dinner, she opened the doors to this other room in her house. And she had all these ta long tables laid out with chairs in front of them. And in front of each chair was a piece of slate. And she said, <laughs> this is a real birthday treat, by the way. She says, I'd like you all to sit down and design your own tombstone. <laughs> And needless to say, people were a little surprised, you know, it's a kind of unusual thing to do at a 60th birthday party. But, uh, you know, after, after I got over my first like, how neat, this may not be appropriate, I thought, well, this is actually really pretty neat. You know, and I sort of had the thought, like, what it would be like to begin a retreat like that. You know, when you register, design your own tombstone. You know, fill out your form and then design your tombstone. Um, and it, it's kind of a grounding invitation. And what it would be like for us, what we would wish to write. If that invitation was offered, what would you write? How you, would you wish to be? Whatever words you would put on that piece of slate. It's kind of a lot of where the practice really focuses us to remember the fleeting nature of this life and to really stay connected 
but what's most important to us. Now when we begin this practice, we begin to focus our hearts, to focus our minds. Not just on our breath or our bodies at the present moment, but I think on a deeper level we're learning how to focus our hearts on our sense of motivation and aspiration. And if we would ask ourselves, you know, what is it that's really important, what really matters in this path, it's not about gaining certain kinds of experiences that will disappear the moment you leave a retreat. It's not about certain attain <coughs> gaining attainments to put in our spiritual portfolio. But really what matters most is the kind of enduring compassion and wisdom of a liberated heart. Now, in the Tibetan tradition, there's an, an enormous amount of weight and significance that is given to this contemplation on motivation and aspiration. You know, when I began to practice in that, in, in that tradition, I was very surprised that, you know, when I first went to my teacher and I was expecting and even demanding, you know, that I was going to be taught all kinds of esoteric meditation techniques and tantra and, you know, all these pretty neat things. I was immediately disappointed <coughs> when instead I was really encouraged to give actually the pretty much the first year of my practice to the reflection and the contemplation upon motivation. In the Tibetan tradition, this con these, are, these contemplations are called preliminary practices, which are essentially serve to focus the mind and the heart. The Dalai Lama calls these preliminary practices preparing the ground of the mind. So then we would ask, well, we're preparing for what? I think what we're preparing for is understanding what is most deeply most deep enduring value for compassion and for liberation. Now these preliminary practices begin really with the contemplation on interconnectedness and our interdependence. And one of the reflections that's encouraged is to imagine that everybody in the world could at one time in these grand circles of life and birth and death that everybody in this world, the people who sit right beside you could at one time have been your mother and how would you wish to treat them? Now of course this was a little bit troublesome for a lot, a number of Westerners and in fact my teacher was absolutely shocked to discover that not everybody would like to contemplate everybody having been their mother. It would actually, they suggest, sour their entire relationship with the world. So, <laughs> there was another way of approaching it, he suggested, which was to imagine that everybody around you could at some time in this grand spectrum of life be your child. Then how would you wish to care for them, to treat them, to relate to them? 
It's really a training. It's not a training in imagination. It's really a training in inclining the mind, the heart, towards kindness, towards ethics and integrity, towards respect, and towards appreciation. Another of the preliminary practices, which again is not easy, I think, for Westerners, was the endless, endless <coughs> reflections upon karma, upon karma, beginning to understand, really, if we put it in, a, in a, you know, the context of our culture, <coughs> that we don't live in a random universe, that everything arises out of conditions, the conditions that our present shape what arises in every moment. This is not hard for us to understand. But I think it's a reflection that really teaches us to understand it, not to think that our thoughts and our acts and our words have no consequence, but that everything matters. And that we, of course, as we see it, we're constantly being shaped and informed by the world around us. The things we hear, the things that come to us, the experiences in our life, the events in our world, are constantly serving to shape and form our hearts and minds. And so too, are we helping to shape and form the world around us through our thoughts and our words and our acts. Now this is not an invitation to suddenly become self-conscious or judgmental but to deeply see ourselves as being a participant in this life. Not a victim, not a master, but a participant in this life and the invitation really to be a conscious participant in the kind of world that we live in moment to moment. And many of these preliminary practices are really designed to expand our hearts and to open us um, to be in the family of life, the family of all things, to come out of the language of I and mine and you and yours and really into the language of we and us. Now another of the preliminary practices is really the ref reflection on the preciousness of human life, of human birth. And the metaphor that is used is this. It says, imagine a great ocean at the bottom of which lives a turtle without any sight. A golden mane floats on the surface of the ocean, moved at random by the waves and the currents. The mane has no mind and is not looking for the turtle. The turtle, having no sight, cannot see the ring. The turtle comes to the surface only once in every hundred years. Can you imagine how rare it would be for the turtle to surface anywhere near the golden ring, let alone encircle her head with it? A precious human life is even more rare than this. In this teaching of the preciousness of our life, of the human life, to me there are two central themes. One of them is the theme of appreciation. 
And the other is the theme of urgency. And I think both reflections prepare the ground of the mind for compassion and awakening. We take just a few minutes with this theme of appreciation. <coughs> and then the truth is that none of us would be here, would be able to come here without the small and the large acts of kindness and care of the countless benefactors in our lives since the time we were born who have touched us with their kindness and their support. Even now in your current life, you know there may be colleagues who are covering for you at work. There may be partners who are supporting you with their energy and their good wishes. There may be friends who are really encouraging you to be here. And it, it's a movement towards this, you know, an appreciation of that, I think, is a movement towards what Mary Oliver calls a sense of gratitude to be given this mind and heart and these body clothes. Even those people in our past and our present who we don't think of as being benefactors. You know, people that we've struggled with, people who have harmed us or injured us in some way, they actually may have played their own part in asking us to find new depths of patience, new depths of generosity and acceptance and forgiveness, but maybe in kindlier circumstances we never would have been asked to find. And I think it's true that our life doesn't always seem very precious. If our life is fraught with struggle or with worry or burdened by difficulties or conflict, it doesn't always feel very precious. But in this teaching, our life is not precious just because we were born. And our life is not precious only in those moments when we find ourselves in fortunate circumstances. But our life is precious because of the potential of our hearts. Because our life is pregnant with possibilities. The possibilities of healing suffering. The possibilities of discovering the same freedom that the Buddha's through <coughs> time had discovered. The possibilities of discovering the same compassion that Bodhisattvas through time had discovered. And our life and our time here is really an invitation to understand and to really almost naturalize and really claim in a way that sense of possibility. <coughs> it's said in this teaching used well this body is our raft to freedom used unwisely this body anchors us to suffering used well this heart is a raft to freedom used unwisely this heart snares us in samsara this heart does the bidding 
of both ignorance and wisdom. That this mind does the bidding of both ignorance and wisdom. And I think knowing the difference between what is wise and what is not wise, what leads to freedom and what leads to suffering, knowing the difference between these two is really part of the journey of focusing our minds and hearts. I'm sure all of us can recall times when our bodies and our hearts have done the bidding of the unskillful when we've acted or spoke or thought in ways that have hurt or injured ourselves or others. And I'm sure we can all recall times too when our bodies and our hearts and minds have really done the bidding of compassion, of wisdom, when we've <clears throat> loved well, when we've walked a path of kindness and generosity, when we've reached out to others with care and compassion. I think all of these moments really are there to teach us about what really matters. My own sense is that it, it, it becomes really clear to us that our capacity for care and our capacity for neglect really live side by side, as do our, capa our capacity to love and our capacity to hate to be fearful or to be fearless, our capacity to focus or our capacity to be very distracted and fragmented lives within the same mind, we all live within the same mind, the same heart. And really what comes into being, what grows and develops is in truth just what we nurture and feed in the moment. I think our life and everything we experience in it continues to teach us about the power of hatred and the power of love. About the power of nurturing care and all that heals and liberates and also teaches us about the effects in our own minds and our own hearts of feeding and nurturing everything that damages and divides. Feeding our demons or feeding our angels, in a way, this is really our choice at the moment and really our practice of the moment. So I mentioned earlier, mindfulness is sometimes translated as remembering or keeping in mind. Remembering and keeping in mind why it is that we you know, sit on a cushion and walk up and down a path, why it is that we bring so much effort just to, to be awake and to be focused. It is remembering why we do it that makes the difference between mindfulness just being another sort of technique or solution or mindfulness being part of the path of liberation and compassion. In the teaching of the precious human life is the encouragement to reflect upon our own freedoms. The freedoms that we have. The things that we are freed from and the things that we are free to nurture. 
I mean, being here is actually an expression of freedom. To have just the opportunity to be here, the opportunity to practice, to to really explore that our own possibility. You know, what in, in classically it said, you know, one of the freedoms of a precious human life is not being born in a barbaric place or in a barbaric time. Now, sometimes we might question whether that's actually, you know, whether we're actually free from that. But compared to much of the world, we truly are. We have the freedom to make choices. We don't wake up each morning, as countless beings in our world do, wondering if we'll eat today, if we will find food or shelter for ourselves and those we love. Impoverishment and despair does not govern our lives like many in the world. I don't know if you saw this really incredibly poignant, touching uh, appeal in the newspaper by the Red Cross. And it was really, it was quoting a woman named Darfur who said that every morning she wakes up with two bleak choices. That if she goes out to collect water, she risks being raped or killed. And that if she doesn't, go out to collect water in the morning. She could watch her children die of thirst. We do have a freedom of being born in a fortunate place and time, even the possibility of hearing and practicing the Dhamma. In the last year I taught in Cuba. It was kind of like first retreat in Cuba and I was really astounded you know, that here was a place in the world where there was certainly no Dharma teachers, no Dharma books, no Dharma centers. I was giving a talk and I, and I said something from the Dalai Lama and they asked me, who's the Dalai Lama? It's almost unimaginable to us that that could be so. Um, you know, that we, we did this retreat there, you know, and it was quite extraordinary, you know, we, we were sitting, you know, in this filthy, filthy room, you know, and people were sitting on concrete floors with no cushions, no mats, you know, sitting all day, you know, we got ants crawling up our heads, you know, there were no bathrooms, you know, no running water, you know, the dogs and the chickens and actually the secret police were wandering through all the time, every city and every talk. And they practice with this incredible magnificence of heart. In fact, the people on the retreat saved because they knew this was coming. It's really amazing. They saved out of their rations for a year. So they could supplement the rations provided by the government on the retreat. And it was so humbling. It's like a, almost unimaginable for us that in those kind of circumstances, <coughs> Their thoughts could be, how can we make this retreat better for others coming on it? When we reflect upon our freedoms and our blessings, or when we hear these stories, the intention is not at all to make us feel guilty or ashamed about what we have, but really to appreciate the miracle of waking up each morning in safety. The miracle of being here, of having a body, may not be a perfect body, 
But it's well enough, isn't it? It's well enough to practice, to breathe, to get up in the morning, to see and to hear. Isn't it a miracle that we have within us even enough wisdom that our lives are just not governed by, by craving power or ambition or prestige? That we have the freedom even to see how insubstantial these are, even to be able to let go is a remarkable freedom. We have the blessings of being born in a time when there is a respect for our practice. Even now, if you go to many, many places in Asia, you would meet most lay people who would not believe it is possible for them to really be free or find depth in their practice in this life that they have to wait, you know, to be born again as a, as a monk. This is really a first generation of people in the Dharma who as lay people really are endeavoring to live an embodied life of freedom and compassion and integrity. And that too is something really remarkable. When we have reflect upon these blessings and freedoms, it's so important to understand that it's not just good luck. We are very fortunate. We are fortunate to have the capacity and the willingness to begin to turn some of the tides of ill will and craving that give rise to so much suffering and anguish. We're fortunate to have the capacity to nourish the nurture all that truly matter. These blessings that we have, I mean, they speak of capacity rather than incapacity. They speak of possibility rather than impossibility. The possibility of awakening and embodying that awakening in compassion and the healing of suffering. Our life is made precious, truly, by really how we direct and how we focus these blessings and these freedoms. When they are directed towards a deepening of wisdom and compassion, then these blessings and freedoms, I think, they ennoble our lives. The second contemplation we're encouraged to consider <clears throat> that follows on the heels on the, of the reflection on the precious human life. It's really the reflection on impermanence. Our life is precious, but it is also so fragile. And we don't know how long our life will be. And we don't know how it will end. And this reflection on impermanence is part of the mandala of focusing our heart on what truly matters. It's designed to evoke a genuine sense of urgency, dedication and commitment, to awaken, to be free, in fact, to practice as if our life depended on it. Nagarjuna Indian teacher, he once said, Life flickers in the flurries of a thousand eels 
more fragile than a bubble in a stream. In sleep, each breath departs and is again drawn in. How wondrous that we wake up still. The Buddha also spoke to this, saying, There is no greater realization than being aware of the impermanence of our life. Just as the elephant's footprint is the greatest of all animals' footprints, so is the meditation on impermanence the most powerful of all meditations. It is, of course, not just the fact of impermanence that we're encouraged to reflect on, but to deeply understand the implications of impermanence and to let these implications of impermanence inform and affect all of our attitudes to life and to how we live, to live wholeheartedly in an undistracted way, loving deeply all that is precious moment to moment, and learning to let go, learning to train ourselves in non-clinging and non-grasping, essentially training ourselves in freedom. The first reflection in the contemplation of impermanence is a reflection upon death, not just as a theory. I mean, like impermanence, none of us argue with dying and death. We know that they are part of our own life circle. I think, you know, culturally in our culture, to contemplate our own death would be considered somewhat grim or morbid, but that's often from the standpoint of denial and clinging. In truth, I think contemplating our own death can be deeply awakening and bring to our practice and to our life not a sense of hate, but really a sense of urgency and meaning. I think we've all experienced when someone that we care for deeply and love dies. It's always a surprise. To some extent, even when we know it's going to happen, it's still a surprise. And when someone we love dies suddenly, those losses really startle us, sometimes into an amazing sense of wakefulness. If you've experienced that, you know that immediately so much of that what is unimportant just falls away. Maybe all the arguments you've had, the disagreements, the irritations. And we feel at peace if we have said to them all the things that have been important to say. If we've let that person know that we care for them and love them. And often we feel deeply regretful if we haven't communicated everything that matters. And yet it can also so easily happen that those moments of being so startled into wakefulness again subside and we become forgetful and we engage in postponement practice thinking tomorrow is surely a better day to be awake or there's surely a more perfect moment to be awake in. 
you know what it would mean for us to live in the light of impermanence and actually to live in the light of our own death? We would probably be much less forgetful. We do know that everything and everyone that is born is bound to die. It never really occurs to us to question whether that is true or not. It's a certainty that our lives only get shorter. They don't get longer. Patro Rinpoche, he says, Death closes in, never pausing for an instant, like the shadow of a mountain, of a mountain at sunset. Yet we tend to treat death like the sound of distant thunder at a picnic. Although we know we will die, and all those around us will die one day, it doesn't always alter our attitudes to life. One day sounds like an abstract. We imagine that that one day will surely be some other day and not this one. And how would our attitudes change if that one day was really sensed it could be this day? Again, Nam said, if I forget to meditate on death early in the morning, my whole morning's meditation becomes incomplete. If I forget to meditate on death at midday, my whole afternoon's meditation becomes incomplete. If I forget to meditate on death in the evening, I should not even go to sleep. Let if we think of what our life <clears throat> would be like if we could truly feel while standing or sitting or walking or lying down that this really is our last act in this world. When we eat, breathe, watch sunset, look at the trees. To know this may truly be the only moment that this is possible. To breathe one breath, not counting, that it will be followed by another. I think then we would remember, begin to remember what truly matters, to love, to be present, to live with appreciation and gratitude and urgency and to explore what it really means to liberate this moment. To reflect upon impermanence and death is not depressing. In a way it's really opening, it opens our hearts, it lightens our minds. Somehow all our hopes and our worries about the future seem a little bit less burdensome. All our regrets and guilt, remorse about the past, and sometimes we can begin to carry them with a little bit more ease and to feel a little bit less entangled. Living in, in the light of that understanding, our struggles to get one thing or to get rid of another, to strive for certain states, ideals of perfection, it all looks a little more empty. In a way, we come home to what truly matters the love, the compassion, the freedom that we can nurture in this moment, as if it's the only moment it was possible. In the Tibetan tradition it's taught, reflect upon death and impermanence for a long time. Once you are certain you are going to die, 
You will no longer find it hard to put aside harmful actions, nor difficult to do what is wise and loving. After that, meditate for a long time on love and compassion. Once love fills your heart, you will no longer find it hard to act for the benefit of all beings. Then meditate for a long time on emptiness. And once you truly understand emptiness and natural state, you will no longer find it hard to dispel all delusions. This human life is made precious by our very deep dedication to everything that matters. Learning to let go of the confusions of our heart with understanding and with tenderness. Learning to let go of all that divides us from others and keeps us locked into struggle and suffering. And our human life is made precious and actually made noble when it is dedicated moment to moment to healing suffering, to peace, to the well-being the happiness of all beings. And our life really is ennobled by that dedication, by that love and compassion. <coughs> I'd like to end with a, another poem <coughs> by Mary Oliver, called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who's gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prairie is. I do know how to pay attention. How to fall down into the grass. How to kneel down in the grass. How to be idle and blessed. How to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me what it is that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.